Hi, welcome to the Accidental Marketer podcast. I'm Mary Abazia, and I'm joined by Tom Spitali, my partner and co-author of The Accidental Marketer, and Sean Wellham, who leads our European operation for our consulting firm, Impact Planning Group. Um, Sean, Tom, are you there? Yep. Hi, Mary. Oh, yes. cool. Hey, Mary. Hey, Tom. Good. Okay, so let's talk about those accidental marketers. Um, by the way, that may be you or it may be someone you work with. Um, we are continuing in a series where we deep dive into chapters of our book. And this chapter is chapter seven. And the title of this one is called The Magnetic Effect of Focus. I mean, you almost have to just like ponder that for a, a while. <laughs> the Magnetic Effect of Focus. Uh, Tom, can you uh, let us know what this is all about? Yeah, it's a sort of ironic concept that all of us have noticed in business. A lot of times we talk to our clients about the need to study their market and pick really tight targets and exclude maybe certain segments that they're not able to compete on. And of course, the reaction is, how am I going to grow if I exclude segments of the market uh, that I'm currently marketing to? And I guess what we've noticed is time and time again, companies that are really, really good and really, really focused on their target get so good and their customers love them so much that there is this buzz in the marketplace that attracts the other segments. And ultimately, by choosing those really, really tight targets and, and, and focusing on segments, you draw in other segments with your value proposition and, uh, you know, and you win. <laughs> so that's you know, what the magnetic effect of focus is really meant to define, that What's irony. What's interesting about that, too, is the corollary of that is, you know, as we ask um, people what's the hardest thing about strategy is what you're not going to do. So it's nice the way that, you know, that the concept of that is, is what are you really, really going to focus on and what are you not going to focus on or make a lower priority? Um, we actually have a tool that we highlight in the book and, and in all of our workshops um, sometimes it's the only tool that we really focus on if there's a lot of things that people are trying to organize. And it's called the um, Strategic Position Analysis, or SPA. Um, it also has a couple other names like the Prioritizer. Um, in, uh, in the past, it's been called also the Stop and Go Grid or a Nine Blocker. So it has many names. Um, but at its core, we call it the strategic position analysis. So it allows us to make those decisions and where we should focus as you're describing, Tom. Um, Sean, can you describe how this works and, and what, what are some of the real keys to this? Yeah, I, I love this chart. The output of the SPA, the strategic position, is a, is a, a, a two-dimensional chart. And it's one of those that is rich in information, but is very simple. Um, we've talked before on these podcasts about the attractiveness score, how attractive is something to us. We, we take a selfish view. Um, and we also talked recently about our ability to compete and how well we rank versus our competition in terms of our ability to meet the customer's buying criteria. And what this chart does is put both of those dimensions together 
and create a unique two-dimensional space. So you have how attractive are we and, and how able are we to compete? And if you have both of those axes with with high as the as, as the end to the right and to the top, then your top right corner is where you'd really want to be. You know, we, we, we find this market or segment very attractive and we also have a very strong ability to compete. And of course, in reality, you're, you're all over the map in terms of, of your ability to um, both compete and, uh, and find them attractive, but it gives you that instant snapshot of where you feature next to your competitors. And you can also add to it, those are the two key bits of information, attractiveness, ability to compete. You can use the size of the circle that you draw. Those that have been to our workshops know exactly what I'm talking about, the bubble, as we call it, on the bubble chart. That can show the size of the total addressable markets. Now you've got three bits of information. How big is this market or segment? How attractive is it? And how well do we compete? And I've even seen people add a, a fourth bit of information with a little pie wedge of how much of this market do we currently have? And if you have that, which is, I think, the ultimate, just in one chart with no words almost, you can say, here's the segment, here's how much we like them, here's how much they like us, here's how big they are in terms of revenue potential, and here's our current market share. I don't know of any other chart or visual device that conveys so much so efficiently. It really is a cornerstone. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, Tom, in the book, you use some examples. Can you describe some of the examples that, um, that you highlighted? Well, one of the ones that we, we talk about, I, I, the, the examples that we chose for the book were ones that illustrated how to use the chart that Sean just described to, to focus and, and, and to let go of certain segments that um, you, know, you probably are spending time, attention, and, and love on that you, you shouldn't be. So, you know, we talked a bit um, about the case of BlackBerry uh, versus a company called Iridium. So we talked about uh, BlackBerry really having this owned franchise of business communication, so much so that um, a lot of people called it the Crackberry. People were actually addicted to this device. They used it so much, and they sort of squandered that by trying to expand into segments that where they really didn't have an advantage, um, including coming up with you know a consumer-oriented phone and competing with the likes of Apple and Android. And um, you know when we were studying uh, this example and looking for a counterbalance to that, Sean found uh, the com a company called Iridium. Sean, what did you what did you find about Iridium that was kind of the counterbalance to BlackBerry? Well, they were a very, very focused business. They had a, um, a very specialist area of telecommunications. It was mission critical, um, off the grid sort of communications. If you were a, an explorer halfway uh, across the Antarctic, or you were involved in oil and gas, maybe, or, or military, or some of the service industries that had grown up to support the military in some fairly hostile and and parts of the world without great infrastructures, so they had this 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 mission critical satellite-based telephone system. Um, but they obviously stuck with that very specific niche. It was never going to be a big market, but they had uh, a degree of focus on a very defined set of customers in very defined circumstances with a very defined technological solution. 
they weren't tempted to launch a, a phone that could download apps or games or or connect your Facebook or what have you. It was very much a a, a, a voice communication system that was um, did did not depend on local infrastructure. They they had a a, a satellite system, so it was global, always on. Um, but contrast that with other businesses that 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 drift you know and i think that's what you were saying tom they, they have a, a strong niche but they they push beyond that and stretch the offer into areas that maybe they don't have such a, a strong value proposition it's you know what's interesting about this mary and sean is i uh developed an addiction for um a, a reality tv show called the prophet with this guy named marcus limonis who goes into he goes into small and medium-sized businesses to fix them up and inevitably i think a hundred percent of the time what he finds is that these businesses even though they're small or medium they're having trouble growing because they have diluted their focus and he starts to look at their their offerings and the markets and the, the uh, products uh, that they're that they're offering and he finds that a small majority of them are really really profitable but they're spending all kinds of time and energy on offerings or segments or businesses that don't return nearly what their primary offering does. And he gets them back to, to, to refocus. It's a staple of his strategy and he seems to have a lot of success. And I think, Mary, we find that in just about every business that we go into as well, even though they're big B2B uh, industrial types of organizations. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I was thinking about um, one of the questions we get is, is, well, when is the best time or where should I use this tool? And that's why this is like uh, the Swiss Army knife. I mean, it you can use it in so many situations. For example, when we were working with a client that had a technology that they could cushion something. So the first thing we did is, is look at all the market spaces and say, what areas might we want to consider cushioning? And then you look at healthcare, you look at shoes, you look at uh, cell phones, um, automotive. There's all the different market spaces. And until you sort out that chaos with the discipline that you guys are describing by using this attractiveness or prioritize, you know, the prioritizer of attractiveness in our ability to win, then you can start to focus in on let's do these markets and then you go down deeper into those markets and this tool you can use for which segments or customers should we focus on and then once you start to focus in that area and make decisions then you can even go deeper into what are those initiatives that will be best how can we have the greatest impact in the market um, and are we ready for for the market space so and then even research groups the R&D group uh, uses this tool to align with the marketing group and the rest of the organization to say, what what things should we be working on that will bring growth through the organization in the future? And they use this tool with those two dimensions that you described, Sean. So do either of you want to describe your experience on, on those levels that I'm describing? I, I just wanted to... Just wanted to build on something that you said, Mary, because it's it's really important. We we do talk a lot about focus and the power of focus and how being too diffuse is usually a bad thing when it comes to um, business success. You've got to have something you're good at. But there's a danger that you fall into that trap of always doing what you've always done. That's different to focus as we talk about it because the SPA and the process that we go through is to create 
a somewhat analytical framework. So we're describing not only what is attractive to us and what we are good at doing from the customer's perspective, but we break that down into its components. So if you were a Kodak, for example, saying, hey, our core is film, that's what we're really, really good at. And you would ignore all the warning signs saying this market is going to go away. You know, or, or maybe a more contemporary example, the TV networks versus the Netflix model. You know, there's often disruption that comes and it's not so much focusing because you're good at something and you have a history with it. It's validating that, isn't it? You know, it's looking to the future and saying, have we asked all the right questions about the attractiveness of this market and our ability to compete? And how do we see that changing in the future? And and it's so it's it's not because I sometimes have people suggest that, that we're saying, like, if you know what you're good at, stick at doing it. This is a way of validating that. And, and it's okay to change direction, but you need a rationale to do it, not just a, a whim. And, and, and don't do it all the time. You know, you can't be jumping from one initiative to the next. You have to have a degree of stability in the business. You know well. what I like <laughs> about oh, uh, Just real quick, uh, Sean, what um, reminded me when you said that is, um, there was one company that they were working um, in the automotive space, and you're right, when they got done with this tool, they had for years been struggling, and it was just so clear that it was a dog for them. They should move into you know, other technologies. So you're right, it really does bring a, a level of discipline to even saying, no, we, <laughs> we should not be in this space. Um, Tom, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, I, I was just going to add to Sean's point as well and to your point, Mary. I guess the... the uh, it brings up the iterative nature of our tools because when you do an analysis like an SPA and you realize that you are really strong with a particular segment, for example, if that's the application, it causes you to go back and say, why are we so strong uh, and attractive to this segment and why is this segment so attractive to us? And what does that, that mean? If I combine the the, the, the strengths that are driving our ability to compete uh, in a particular segment, and I combine that with certain trends or emerging customer needs, I can begin to develop a really customer-centric view to innovation and new product lines that not only lead me to focus on things that customers care about, but things that I as a company or we as a company can deliver on um, with uh, you know, with some differentiation, so mm -hmm. it starts to, starts to turn back on itself and, and and leads it to this virtuous circle. Yeah, I I think you're right, and and part of that virtuous circle is getting the right people in the room to work on this. This is one of those concepts and tools that is an alignment for the whole organization, which means that. Um, you do want the people in that might disagree later with um, the decision on the market or the customer type or even the type of things you're working on. So you may have in there finance, legal, the sales group, um, especially when you have people that touch the customers in any way. But getting everyone in a room for a couple of hours, you know, pre-work would be good in this case. But to be able to really um, discuss, as Sean said, what is attractive to us collectively and have that argument. And, you know, we go deeper into that in another chapter. And then how ready or what is our ability in this space? And having that collective conversation, you're going to get everything on the table. And uh, Tom, you and I were in a recent <laughs> meeting where it was uh, it was an ugly meeting. People were arguing with each other because they had very different views. But when we walked out, they understood each other's viewpoint and we were able to actually 
have alignment on where we would focus. You know, the magnetic magnetic effect of not only focus, but alignment in that case for them to say, oh, yeah, this is how we are going to proceed to grow. So um, any any closing thoughts um, on that, Sean? I, I just I just think you reminded me that so much of our life is actually causing people to argue. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a positive thing. I mean, we've always said that if there's a danger, isn't there? If everyone says, yeah, that's what we think of the criteria. Yeah, that's how we're doing. Yeah, we all agree with that. Yeah, this is a, it's like, whoa, chances are you may be right. But more often than not, if you're so convinced, then you maybe don't have a diverse enough group. Maybe you need to bring a counter alternative opinion into the room. And, and maybe you should, uh, it's good, it's good health to, to defend your position sometimes, you know, having your position or your beliefs or your assumptions attacked, isn't a personal affront. It's, it's a way of strengthening. It's, it's a workout for your prejudices and your beliefs. You know, if someone challenges you, and you can defend it without um, literally falling out or throw, I have not had any people throw chairs across the room, yet. <laughs> maybe one day. But if you can have that robust debate, you know, that elevates knowledge and shares knowledge. And and I think that's um, a key part of this. You know, we sometimes we, we pitch the simplicity of the output and maybe we sometimes undersell the, the huge complexity of getting to that output. I mean, that to me sums this tool up. There should be an awful lot of, of effort put in. Now, the final output should be beautifully simple, but to get there... You, you've got to put the hard yards in, and that's what this tool does at both ends of the scale. It, it works you hard, but it gives you a lovely reward. Mm, at the end. Very poetic. Yeah. Tom, closing thoughts? Wow, it'd be hard to top that poetry. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'll, I'll just say that our tools, uh, I, I continue to say that our, our tools make decision-making explicit, right? And, and it breaks down important decisions into their component parts where people can kind of get their rationale out there. And they tend to diverge away from alignment at the beginning of the discussion, but everything gets out on the table. And because of that, and because it give the opportunity for people to discuss their views and break their decision-making down when they come to that rough agreement at the end and converge on a decision, everybody um, is ready to support it. And that's what's powerful about uh, the tools and, and this one in particular. Yeah, very, very well said. Yeah, well, well, well said. Right, I'm, I'm going to go and wander lonely like a cloud. <laughs> go ponder things. While, I'm, well, while you while, ponder, I'm going to close this podcast out, okay? <laughs> we really uh, appreciated okay. you joining us today, and uh, we look forward to having you join us for future podcasts where you can see how this fits in with other concepts with the Accidental Marketer. Thank you.